I want more than just a piece. Wanna be heard from the west to the east. I worked in my craft and I prayed for my time on the scene. The man have never left my team. 19, love the right creed. Nah, I'm not a right breed, but I might be. In my crease, now kids hit up my G. I'll still never sell out my theme. Well, you know about heritage. You go inherited. Don't chill with the snakes, but the flow's still venomous. Perspective is everything. So much lemonade, I don't know what a lemon is. Alex, thank you so much for doing this. It's a pleasure. I'm excited about it. So we often, you know, go to these events, go to these podcasts, go to these shows and people read out this long bio about us. And I, I, I remember, I mean, lots of different events I've done when people read the bio, I'm just like, it's not really me. I don't like how they said that. I'm just itching to correct them or to whatever. So one thing I want to start doing with guests moving forward is asking guests how they would describe who they are and what they do. So how do you think about yourself and what you do? Yeah, well, that's a brilliant question and in lots of different ways. And if you ask me tomorrow, I'll probably give you a different answer. Uh, I'm a community person. I was born and raised in Camden Town, which in the 80s and 90s was a place of community. Um, but I'm also somebody who appreciates the kind of richness of different experiences in the world. My grandparents always lived in a tiny little village called Fotherby in northeast Lincolnshire, where mm. the only thing that ever changed was the addition of a headstone in the churchyard from time to time. Nothing else ever changed. <clears throat> and they and I had a very close relationship. So I think of myself as a bridge builder uh, between different worlds and different life experiences, but rooted in urban communities, which is really my experience growing up in London, living most of my life in London, the only other place I've really lived a couple of years in Nottingham when I studied there and a year in New York. Yeah. Um, but it's that combination of things, my relationship with my grandparents and my understanding of different experiences in the world and how sometimes those experience, cause experiences can lead people to feel separated mm. that lead me to the work that I do at the Cares family. That's so fascinating, mainly because it's so different from my upbringing and I'm really interested in that. So if we jumped you know, back to where you grew up, so you grew up where? Camden Town, Camden in Town. London. Yeah. So what was it or what interesting things would you say happened when you were young that were kind of shaping who you are now and some of the work you do now? Well, so in Camden Town, it was a very urban, fast place, fast paced place. It was a place where at that time, and this is going to sound nostalgic and I don't really mean it to, but mm. you know, at that time, it felt like everyone knew everyone. Right. So there were people from all over the world, but there was like a, an understanding and a closeness between neighbors. It felt to me like it was a it was a neighborhood mm. in the proper meaning of the word. And people would stop on the streets and, you know, my mum would leave me in the local toy shop on a Saturday afternoon on my own while she went over the road and did shopping. And I would just, you know, hang out with the person who was running the toy shop, who we need to come back to, by the way, because he played a very important role in my life really? later on and in the development of our work. Um, but at the same time, I was increasingly conscious of the disparities in a place like Camden Town as well. So, you know, I remember uh, racist and right wing graffiti daubed on walls. Mm. Uh, I remember the day that the first Gulf War started it happened to be the day at my primary school that there was a bomb scare, which kind of educated me a little bit aged eight or nine about war in the world and even the conflict that was going on in the UK mm. at the time and, you know, the, the um, conflict with the um, IRA. Um, and 
Uh, so I felt like I had a rooted experience, one that was rooted in place and rooted in local relationships, but also one that was open to the world because of the fascinating, amazing people that were coming to Camden Town from all over the world and that were my friends and neighbours. Mm. That's so interesting. Again, because how is it that there were so many people in Camden at that time? I mean, I, would, I, mean, I don't want to age you here, but I would imagine that <laughs> at that period... I'm ageing myself. First <laughs> I would imagine at that period... Like, you know, we didn't have the kind of, or would you say we had a rich diversity we had now in Camden when you were No, it wasn't like it is now, but it was, it was, you know, it was an inner city place. Mm. Um, It was a place where people would come from all over the world to chase economic success or build families. And um, it was um, about as diverse a place in the early to mid eighties as you would get in this country. Um, And it was the, the pace and the richness of culture from music and theatre and community events that I just loved growing up as a kid. And the important thing to notice as well is that it was it was different from the experience that my grandparents had, right, which was a very singular experience as yeah. a village where like 60 people live. There weren't very many houses at all. And so I felt a connection to both those worlds. Um, but I still feel most at home in Camden. I think of that as the absolute epicentre of my world, the smells, the people, the places, yeah. uh, and the pace of change that is still happening there. Let's talk about that change because I find that really fascinating. I mean, you spoke there about the guy in the toy shop. I don't know if we should come back to him now, but this idea of you being left <clears> at, in the shop to kind of you know, muck around and then someone will come back for you now. I imagine some parents listening to this podcast are probably like, sorry, what? <laughs> Why did anyone feel comfortable leaving you alone? In a, you know, what's changed between then and now that now that makes people recoil this idea of leaving kids alone to play on the streets uh, leaving kids alone to wander in shops that's just something you can't do now you can't do it as much because the culture has changed but mm. the world and the vision that i have of a society where there are connections between neighbors and there is trust between neighbors we would get back to a place where you can do that sort of thing again where people will look out for one another um i remember in camden in the 80s one of my best friends still one of my best friends uh, who lived five doors down from us coming along and my dad was painting our front door of the flat that we lived in bright red front door and my best mate he was probably age six at the time just to wind my dad up put his hand in the wet paint of the front door my dad gave him a clip around the ear and uh my best mate ran back to his mum and said bob just hit me and uh my best mate's mum said well what did you do wrong to deserve that (laughs) there was the trust in the community that was like we're all parenting each other here right that famous phrase it takes a village to raise a child What's changed since then? Well, what is it? 40 years, I'm turning 40 in three weeks time. Um, I think the pace of change in the world has accelerated massively. I think the combination of globalization, gentrification, Mm. digitization, deindustrialization, like those market forces have accelerated change and have left people feeling a little bit rudderless and like they don't have a sense of who's who in a community because Mm. then there are cultural changes, like people live less time in the communities that they live in there's more transience that's because of housing and housing prices uh there's more single occupancy living which leaves people feeling more alone you know they don't have the roots in the community maybe that they once had there's cultural forces um there are political forces you know 
austerity in the last 10 or 12 years has led to the loss of lots of community spaces, community centers where yeah, people can yeah, get yeah. to know one another. We're working differently, um, but also bureaucratic forces as well. So, you know, health and safety regulations can sometimes leave people feeling stifled and isolated and lacking an agency to make decisions themselves and with their neighbors or, you know, the automation of pick up a phone to speak to somebody at your local bank press one to listen to this piece of lift music press yeah, press yeah, two yeah, yeah. to speak to somebody on the other side of the world right everyone's feeling a little bit more separated from yeah. one another and that's like it leads us on to the to the work that we do at the i mean I, I can agree i actually had an experience a few weeks ago where i left my keys in the hotel and i just wanted to call them to just just to ask them to check my room it took me at least 15 minutes and at the end of it all, 15 minutes to talk to a human being. And at the yeah. end of it all, they said, can you email us hmm. what you just said and we'll get back to you. I sent the email, they still haven't got back to me. That experience for me, I'm just like, okay, I, I'm all for innovation. I'm very techie. I'm interested in kind of, you know, you know progression. But if, if that's what innovation means, that I can't just actually connect with a human and explain to them why those keys are so important. It's not like I've left, you know, my AirPods or something, which sure are important, but I need my keys to get into my house, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, all of that is missed because of just all the system they've put in place to just ensure that, you know, at the end of it, it's just an email I need to send. Um, and on the phone, as you said, I'm being passed from this guy that play music I like, music I don't like. I'm just like, oh. I bet there was more music you didn't like. Oh, like, absolutely. They do it to one people up. Why, why? You reckon they do it on purpose? To no, I don't up. think they do. I just think that there's a lot of kind of remote decisions made. The remote they could play from the, the top communities. 50s. Like they could play the top, you know, top, top 40, they top would probably 10. cost more money. So they're looking, they're always looking out for the bottom line. But bear in mind as well that, you know, you are a tech entrepreneur, incredibly well-connected, savvy you know, that even though that experience is not easy or the nicest experience for you, imagine if you're not confident with technology, right? Or you yeah. don't have amazing relationships that can give you the confidence to navigate this rapidly changing world, right? It's, it is incredibly difficult to navigate this world for people who haven't kept pace yeah. or who haven't exercised their social muscle memory, as I think about it, right? Like people who are out of practice with the world in general and with relationships specifically, it's a, it's a really marginalizing experience to yeah. live in this world. It's disorientated. I think what you spoke about, you said rudderless mm. and that, that definitely connected with me and I think may connect with a lot of our listeners and viewers too, because, and this is why I find the work you do so, so fascinating at the Cares family, because that is the term, I think, is with all these forces, you said a lot of isations there. I know yeah. people, some people might be like, a lot of globalization, <laughs> deindustrialization. It's like all these are kind of global, almost tectonic forces that are shifting and moving. And when you localize it, you think about yourself as an individual, you do kind of wonder, like, the world is moving so fast. And case in point, you know, I might go on Instagram and it's a tiny experience and I have it in my room alone, but I think it speaks to what you're saying, which is that I jump on there and the app looks different to like three weeks ago and there's new people on there. Everyone's kind of showing progress in their life and just, it just feels like the world is moving so fast yeah. and you just wonder like, and I think there's the fear a lot of young people have and maybe older people too, you just feel like you're so behind everything and everyone else 
have you encountered much of that in your work? And what would you say to people who are feeling like that? Because I suspect a lot of people <coughs> listening to this may be feeling just like that. Do you know what? I'm um, to come back to your point about all of the isations, globalization, digitization, gentrification. Um, one of the things that I'm experiencing quite a bit with young people at the moment is the sense of powerlessness yeah. in the world in general. You know, the crises that are in front of us are so big and we all have such little agency as individuals or even as communities to make a difference. Climate change being the really obvious one, but social injustice, racial injustice. You know, there are so many massive crises out there that we've had opportunities in the last 40 years that I'm describing in this pace of change mm. to do something about and progress is just too slow. Um, and so a lot of people are feeling that powerlessness in the world and they are seeking to apply whatever power or agency they have to make change where they are. So, you know, I work in a social change organization. Lots of my colleagues and friends work in social change organizations mm. and young people, you know, and thank goodness they're doing this are putting more and more pressure on the institutions they work at and the bosses that they work with to make radical change now, yeah. as soon as possible. And, you know, that has problems for people like me that lead organizations because change can't always happen immediately and there are legacy systems and there are, you know, other considerations to make, fundraising, finance, yeah. and all of these other things that you know all about. Um, but it also is an invitation to do more quicker because there are things in institutions and in communities that can change. And I think sometimes, you know, leaders can get a bit lazy and rely on their legacy systems as a way to perpetuate their own agency in the world and their own authority and power in the world. Yeah. And actually, like, we need to kind of do what we can to recognize that we're building this world for future generations. Yeah. <laughs> and so we need to listen to those younger people and what they're trying to achieve in the world. But yeah, people are feeling isolated. They're feeling marginalized. Loneliness is the big issue that we work on at the CARES family. Um, I love the sound of the seagulls. I was going to say, the, 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 the seagulls, uh, I mean... They... Keep this in. That's a good backdrop. <laughs> I like they are desperate. So long as it doesn't come in. They're desperate to get involved. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. Sometimes you hear bird song. And sometimes you hear seagulls, you know, it's all nature. So we're, we're grateful for it all. Um, so something you said, Alex, which I guess I always think about and that's okay, cool. So the current system we have isn't working for us, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Young people feel displaced, old people. I don't think it even matters by age, you know. I think people just feel displaced. We feel like the world's accelerating so quickly. There's a new iPhone out, you know, probably by the time we finish this podcast, there's a new one out. And so... You kind of wonder, who is this working for? Mm. If the system as it currently stands is leading to people feeling more lonely, people feeling more isolated, why are we rushing so much? Why don't we just, why don't we have a few years where the iPhone, a new iPhone doesn't come out? A few years where, you know, uh, uh, Instagram doesn't update their algorithm. Like, can we just pause? Which is what a lot of people feel like. They just want to press pause on the world and just, just like. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I don't know who it's working for, except for self-evidently on the balance sheets of the massive global tech companies mm. <clears throat> and conglomerates there are people in the world who are benefiting from this system and who don't want to change it quite because it benefits them mm. um but i don't think it's working for the majority i think it comes from uh in a country like the uk it comes from a long heritage of individualism which is hardwired into our dna over hundreds and hundreds of years it comes from a kind of northern european anglo-saxon protestantism you know that is rooted in our history and is about individualism and was then uh kind of redoubled by thatcherism in the 80s which mm. was all about pull yourself up by your bootstraps etc uh 
And then those cultures are perpetuated from generation to generation. <clears throat> and often we kind of take on board with us as generations advance, the baton is passed. And we lose some of the wonderful things that previous generations have learned, but we keep some of the things maybe that we shouldn't be keeping. I'm just thinking, you know, I've mentioned my parents already. My dad's mantra to me was, you're only as good as your last record. Mm. Now that was wonderful insofar as it instilled in me an ambition for success. And it doesn't really matter what your last success was. Was There's further for you to go. Yeah. And by the way, another one of my heroes is Sir Alex Ferguson, for whom the same sort of philosophy would absolutely apply. Yes. Um, but in the pace that we're living right now, what does that mean? It means you're always aiming higher. You're never satisfied, whether that's in your dating life. Mm. And I should add that I'm very satisfied with my dating yes. life. But, um, of course. <laughs> but, you know, it's like you're never satisfied. What's next? On to the next one. It's um, That is in our culture. It's in how we interact with one another. One of the things that fascinates me, there's a piece of research that shows that it takes 3,000 WhatsApp messages or people will send and receive 3,000 WhatsApp messages for one face-to-face -face interaction. That's the proportion, the ratio, with which we now have digital exchanges versus face-to-face -face exchanges. Oh, That's really not healthy, I right? Know, that make my heart skip a beat. But, but I bet <laughs> yeah, I can recognize that for my yeah, own yeah, self. Yeah. I'm sure you can recognize that for your own self as well. You know, it's, um, we're being bounced down this kind of road of rampant capitalism that says that what's efficient is more important than your relationships. You know what, that is, that's for me, what you just said there is, strikes me as the key because there is an efficiency to messages. And I realize this, you know, I look after a business like you um, or well, I look after a charity as well. So, so I am always talking to people either about something they're doing well and they need to do more of or something they're not doing so well and they need to kind of, you know, work on or in a new project, whatever it is. And the amount of messages I send compared to the face-to-face -face interactions I have is quite, you know, stark, right? Because there's an efficiency to, you know, writing a message, altering it a bit, sending it to 12 people right. versus calling 12 people one by one and having a conversation and going, how's your but day? But you don't get the How same you richness. Doing? You don't get the same richness, right? You don't, if you call right? your 12 friends one by one, you're going to learn something. You're going to have an exchange that you didn't even plan for. What would, you, what would you say to someone who said there's no time for that? Well, I would point to the, so I would point specifically to our use of self-service checkouts, mm. which we do for the same reason, right? People say that they prefer to use self-service checkouts in supermarkets and shops because it's more convenient for them. And they like also being on the phone at the same time or listening to music or listening to a podcast or sending a message at the same time, <laughs> right? Smiles in the room all around because that's us. <laughs> we do it. But they do not like the aggregate feeling of the way that it makes them feel. They do not like the sense of loneliness. They do not like the lost interaction that they had with somebody behind a ticket counter or a supermarket checkout counter mm. that might feel like an informal and quite shallow interaction. But actually those loose ties between people in our communities, quick hello to the barber as you're walking down the street. Yeah. How's your day to the person that's serving you a coffee instead of being on your phone at the same time? Those tiny interactions are the linkages between the bigger interactions in our days and in our lives. And they make us feel good. They make us feel seen. And in a world where so few people feel as seen as they need to, those interactions are fundamental. And again, it comes back to the point that if you're already marginalized in society, if you have physical disability or a frailty or if you're older and your relationships have fragmented for yeah. reasons of people passing away or you're not working as much as you used to, you don't have the opportunity for the richness of interaction that maybe you once did. Mm. 
to have those more shallow interactions in your community is actually really, really, really important. Again, it helps you feel seen and recognized. So, yeah, I think the way that we're collectively living, at least in this city and in our major cities in the UK at the moment, but in other major cities around the world as well, notably in the major cities that have that same kind of history and heritage of an individualistic culture yeah this isn't the case everywhere latin america parts of africa parts of parts of southern asia parts of southern europe right they yeah. don't have this same phenomenon <clears throat> i think it's a really big problem yeah absolutely i mean the, the the fact that you speak about different parts of the world i can speak about i mean i grew up in nigeria for a few years i was very very young i mean i was there for like five or six years um but I remember a lot of things because I remember a lot of people. I remember a lot of experiences. The community uh, raising you, as you said, I remember vividly. I remember once our house got burgled. I remember the fact that the whole, you know, kind of, um, uh, kind of compound came together to say what's going on, what's happening, who was it, you know. So whereas here, I, I you know, I, I don't want to say it's the same across the UK, but I do think where I grew up, if I got burgled, it would be me and the police having a conversation. Mm. And maybe we would speak a bit to our neighbours, but I'll be honest, I don't even know my neighbours' names, you know. Uh, and so, like, you do wonder, what is it about the West, you know, the global North, whatever you want to call it, what is it about the way we do life that, yeah, you're right, is expedient on certain metrics, but as per fulfilment, isn't there, I guess... There's like a Christian kind of approach, and I'm a Christian, and and contentment is of is probably the word we would put. You know, I think it's more about being satisfied, and they're probably brothers or sisters those words because contentment is like okay, cool. I'm not where I want to be, mm. but I'm not where I used to be, <laughs> and so there's this kind of middle ground where you kind of go. Um, I mean, First Timothy six six speaks about godliness and contentment being a great gain. I know for some people the godliness part is like no thanks. But the contentment part, you know, we could still see as a great gain because it's like, where's the place for thinking I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I used to be. And having that balance where you can enjoy things, but not feel like you're enjoying them to fill this deep hole and void in you. And it's ultimately about kind of connection in general, right? Mm. So you mentioned faith and spirituality. I'm not a religious person, but yeah. I have a faith in other people and in community, and I have a sense of spirituality and kind of connection with the universe in general. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like associational faith, whether that's people going to um, churches or mosques or um, temples, mm. that type of interaction is less common than it used to be in our cultures that we've created in the last 40 years. And people are losing that sense of congregation, I suppose, is a word that could be replied both to community and to faith spaces yeah. as well. And um, people are losing that sense of singing. You know, people don't have such a, connect, a connection with their football clubs as they used to because they have become more corporate, more remote, more abstract in general, not so much with the grassroots community football clubs, which are, I think, in, in playing an increasingly important role quite because football in general is being more stratified. Um, but so I think that connection to self or to nature or to the universe is something that we've forgotten in our general cultures, urban cultures in particular, to make time for. Yeah. And they're fundamental to who we are. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, connection to, to the world is kind of rooted throughout that. If you look at growth mindset, connection is a really important part of that. If you look at the five ways to well-being, yeah. connecting to other people, connecting to yourself, connecting to nature, they're all really, really important. And I don't know. Yeah, some of this stuff kind of came out in the pandemic. 
this mm-hmm. sense that community is important again. But as soon as that moment has moved on to another, we're picked off where we've left off. Yeah. Without really fundamentally radically reappraising how it is that we're living together. And, and the fundamental is we're not living together. People kept on, you remember, people kept on speaking about the new normal and mm. what the new normal would be. But it, it, you're right, it seems like we've just gone... The new normal is the old normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we just got we're back. We just picked up where we left off and we haven't reflected particularly, we haven't learned particularly. Um, it, yeah, I just, we're kind of, um, we're hurtling along on this ride and this applies to economics as well, right? Mm. Yeah, all political parties are saying growth, growth, growth. To what end? Where does perpetual growth ultimately take us to it takes us to catastrophic climate change because we're burning up the planet Mm. so you know it's um yeah i think we're on a pretty dangerous course but i have hope because of that thing that i've already spoken about the kind of the sense of people taking back control and i used that expression mindfully but also in its proper meaning of the word right because people are seeking agency not just as individuals but they're coming together in communities Mm. Uh, whether that's communities of kind of mutual interest or communities of place or digital communities where, you know, of identity or culture or background. And lots and lots of incredible organizations, individuals and communities are standing up for one another. And and that energy is bubbling at the grassroots from the bottom up. You can't see it in the media yet as much on mainstream media as much as you should be able to. It's not referred to enough yet in politics, but it's coming. Mm. Right, that bottom-up kind of change is really coming. I sort of, I, I sort of want to shift gears because as you're saying these things, I'm like, this is a lot of heavy stuff. Like, Alex, this is this is. Sorry, uh, I was looking forward is, to a light conversation. Yeah, yeah, I was like, this is a lot of heavy stuff. I think some people listening are probably like, maybe they're going to work and they're like, God, wow, you know, this is a lot. And it takes a certain type of person to kind of focus on this and to choose this, you know, as their sort of thing that they're gonna do in their corner of the world. I always talk about how. We all need like a corner of the world to clean up. Like, get a brush and a dustpan, pick a corner, and just like sweep it. No, no point being like the whole thing's dirty. It's like, yeah, cool. Just pick a corner, mm-hmm. I love and that. you, you just, you just, you know, brush and dustpan, do that. Um, to combat or to build, you know, a business around, you know, solving or addressing loneliness, you know, uh, social deprivation, things like this, you know. You, you need a lot of energy and you need a lot of motivation, a lot of kind of you know, passion to do it. Where would you say your passion comes from for kind of addressing these very sticky, wicked problems that are multi-layered and take a lot of kind of energy, focus to, to, to really address? I mean, it's, a, it's a good question and it comes back to my grandparents and my relationship that I had with them and the the feeling that older people or people Mm. in general might be left out and marginalized. They weren't thankfully, but the, the, in my imagination thinking that they could have been or that if they were alive now, they would be is a real motivator for me. I think then a second motivator and a microcosm for why I do the work that I do in the way that I do it was my first day at university. I come from kind of a, um, a family that was in the middle class for the first time really as I was growing up but has working class background and heritage Mm. and so I went to university and on my first day there in these kind of grand halls uh, somebody came up to me and said hi which school did you go to and I was like what (laughs) said which school did you go to and I went are you from Camden like do I know you because why would he ask me that question if he hadn't recognized me yeah and he said no I'm not from Camden which school did you go to I'm making this sound like it couldn't possibly be true, but in 2001, this is absolutely something that happened. 
Um, and I said, I went to William Ellis in Camden Town and have a stock for a bit before that. And he said, he kind of huffed and just moved on to the next person. <laughs> and what that taught me, and I didn't really know at the time, was there is a, um, there is a hierarchy in this country and it is built on structures of class and education mm. and, and a lack of education in some of those communities. And fundamentally, the thing that holds it together is relationships between people. Mm. So the opportunities that people in certain schools have, the horizons that they have, the connections that they have, that can get them an internship that at a higher paid job that somebody who might not have had those connections wouldn't mm. ever be able to get. Um, and so in that moment, I think it was, um, you know, something came alive in my mind about relationships in that moment. Then over the course of the next 10 years or so, I worked in community places. I worked in a school, obviously wow. a community place. I worked in a record shop. You might not think of it as a community place, but somewhere people go to to get the things they love and share it. And uh, I worked in an estate agent. You might not think of it as a community place, but this is a place where people go to put down roots. <laughs> a travel agent. Again, you might not think of it as a community place. It's people were going there to book trips to weddings and funerals. Were and you deliberately choosing ones. these jobs or? No, just my reflection many years later Got is you. that they taught me about, and a pub, by the way, like a classic place of community. Of course, you have to end with a pub. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and like, they just taught me about the power of relationships and yeah. you can see the nexuses and the webs of different people mm. coming in who know different, you know, know some of the people that you've already encountered. And it was at that time, well, I worked in politics then for a couple of years and uh, in 2010, I was a council candidate. And this is where we get back to the man in the toy shop from when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, on election day in 2010, I was knocking on people's doors, trying to get people to come out and vote for me. And behind one of the doors was this 84-year-old man who it turned out was called Fred. And he said he'd love to come out and vote. He'd never missed an election in his life. But he wouldn't be able to today because he hadn't been out of his house for three months. He hadn't oh, wow. spoken to anyone for three months apart from his carer who brought him his breakfast and his dinner. So he wouldn't be able to come out. He was very frail and he was, you know, not, didn't have the confidence to leave the house either. And I took him to vote in his wheelchair um, because he was comfortable to do that. And uh, as I returned him to his home, he said, this has been wonderful to see a younger person to uh, have a different sort of conversation apart from the one that I have with my carer or the TV, which was his main form of company. If only I could get a haircut, he said, because his hair in those three months had gotten long and greasy. Yeah. So because he'd come out to vote for me, I lost my election, so I don't know if he actually did vote for me, but I felt that he'd come out and voted for me. Uh, the next day, the least I could do would be to return to his house, wheel him down the road again so he could get a haircut. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he and I became friends. He inspired the work that I've done now for the last 11 years, which is bringing older and younger people together to reduce not just the loneliness and isolation of the older people, but the loneliness and isolation I'd felt by virtue of just hanging around with other people like me in the world. Mm. Um, he and I became friends. It so turned out that that was his shop, the place that my mum and dad would leave me on a Saturday afternoon while they went uh, to get their groceries over the road. Fred's shop escapade was my little home. It was my little refuge on a Saturday afternoon. And so we had met and known one another 25 no years earlier. Yeah. And um, that's not the reason we became friends. I only found that out you know, about all of that a little bit later on. But um, it just taught me the power of kind of connecting the dots between different life experiences and showing all of us mm. what we have in common with people that we think are actually radically different from us. Um, and what I've learned in the last 11 years, bringing younger and older people together with the Kerr's family is that, and this really does answer your question, 
isolate lon- let's talk loneliness right loneliness is not just a personal human emotion mm. it is it's part of our human condition we would not want to eradicate it totally it's like sadness or happiness right it's part of life it's more than that though it is a public health crisis because the type of loneliness chronic loneliness that people are living right now leads to strokes and heart attacks and depression and dementia and poor mental health outcomes yeah. some research says it leads to cancer as well So it's a public health crisis and it's a political crisis because we are withdrawing from one another, right? And what does that lead to? It leads to othering, discrimination, polarization, division, more dislocation. Like that way is a dark place, fragmented place. So we think of loneliness like at the Cares family across those three different prisms. And so the motivation for doing this is rooted in my grandparents and my relationship with them. It's built on my experience in the world over the last nearly 40 years. And it's led me to a place where I'm like, actually, this is an equity issue. Right? This is about all of us. This is about what makes us human. How do we come together? How do we live in a world of rapid change? And if you think the last 40 years have been fast paced the next 40 with ai and automation and climate change is going to feel somewhat more dislocating yeah so um yeah that's a long answer to a short no, question no, but it's, <laughs> i mean one we love a full circle moment so i love how you circled back <laughs> i love circling back but two that is generally amazing the fact that you could connect and you were able to connect him the, the, this lovely uh, man called fred and your kind of early childhood experience i mean that's such a it's such a beautiful thing that the universe, you know, kind of created for you to experience just that full circle moment. Um, <clears throat> it comes back, by the way, to you, to the point we were talking about earlier, right? Like yeah. you said, how how do we have a world where people can leave their kids with one another again? And um, I, I, it's Fred. I knew his name, right? And and the thing that I was trying to get at ultimately with building the Cares family is if we know one another, if we look one another in the eyes, if we trust our neighbours, had I known Fred before that day that I serendipitously met him on election day, would he have fallen into that isolation? Would he have fallen into that kind of cycle of dislocation and despair? Hopefully not. So that's what we're trying to do, right? Yeah. We're trying to like bring people together and connect the dots and um, help people to live in community again i think you're going, to be, you're going to be the best person to ask these set of questions then because these are some of the things me and friends talk about and i think you have a unique vantage point in that you can see a lot of the kind of moving parts one of the reasons i set up the common sense network is because you know i think there's so much more that we have in common than we have apart or that we whatever the term is <laughs> we have a lot more in common than we think and i love the idea of people with radically different life experiences with different political political kind of mindsets coming together and actually trading ideas and that and i generally believe in exchange yeah our political structure isn't set up like that exchange just isn't part of it it's adversarial it's one versus the other i mean i'm sure your time in new york exposed you to the american system <laughs> kind of very closely which is even <laughs> worse i would say to be to be quite frank but I do wonder, again, at risk of talking about, you know, global forces, a lot of people listening to this right now, probably maybe people who are dealing with loneliness, but would never, and chronic loneliness, as you put it, but would never admit it. Yeah. Um, if you look online, they are having lots of fun. Um, they may be driving now next to a partner and they feel very, very disconnected from that partner. That probably made the partners look at each other now. But they're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listening to this in the car and the podcast. And right? they're like, what's going on? <laughs> but I just wonder what you would say to these people who are online, you know, they they have followers, they have friends, they're 
you know, they have subscriptions to the gym, they're part of a health club, like they've, they've got all the things that should allow for connection and meaningful interaction, but aren't feeling any of that. Oh, it's, that is the million dollar question. I, I don't have a single answer. I wish I did. I'm trying through the CARES family and bringing generations and people from different backgrounds and attitudes and classes and races and experiences together. Mm. Uh, I still don't have a perfect answer. But what I would say is um, sometimes less is more. And I don't take my own advice on that. And I am, I'm on social media and I love getting a like. I love a retweet. Love a retweet. I'll give you one later today. Thank you. I appreciate that. That'll make, that'll make me feel good. But recognize that the social media algorithms are designed to give you that hit of dopamine that you yeah. get that makes you feel good when you get a retweet or a like. It's not real. It's not real. Like it's not. Yes, it may perpetuate your influence in the world or your sense of influence in the world. But do you really need to find that other piece of content to put out there in the world? Or actually, is it more important that you spend that time with your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your grandparents? Mm. Uh, and in particular, somebody who might not have quite exactly the same experience in the world as you do, because ultimately that will raise your empathy. So I think less is more in the online space in particular. Mm. Reject FOMO. The, we have to be intentional in this world. We have to make conscious choices. Uh, like, honestly... People's lives are not what they post on social media. That is, if somebody posts a thousand pictures on Instagram a year, that's still only a thousand seconds. <laughs> I don't know how many seconds there are in a year. I'd have to do the math. But um, it's a very, very tiny snapshot. It's literally a snapshot of people's lives. It doesn't very often show you the struggles people are going through or the sense of depression that people have or the loneliness that people yeah, experience, yeah. right? So small is beautiful sometimes. Uh, reject FOMO. And really importantly, find your five a day, five meaningful connections every single day. They don't all have to be in person. They can be on the phone. They don't all have to be with loved ones. You know, it can be with the person at the barbershop or a neighbor that you just say hi to. Um, a complete stranger, the person who serves you a coffee, you know. Um, but pick up the phone to the people that you love and tell them that you love them. Because, um, you know, we all lose people in this world. And we all lose things in general, right? We all lose a sense of culture, a sense of self, a sense of togetherness. This is the experience we're going through. So um, reach out to other people, whether you're feeling good or not, because the key thing is it takes two people for one person to be visible, right? Yeah. So not only will they feel good by virtue of you reaching out, but you'll feel good too. What's so interesting to me about all of that is the fact that ordinarily growing up, you know, your mum might tell you some of these things or your mm -hmm. dad might tell you or your grandparents, essentially people who you're, you're living with um, and grown up with. But because young people have access to devices so early, I mean, I've literally seen three, four-year-olds on iPads and that's how they do most of their socialization by watching stuff and tapping things and whatever. It means this sense of individualism can actually be very kind of cultivated from a very young age. Yeah. And so, you know, I remember meeting one of these young guys who approached me at an event to ask for mentorship. He was quite young. He was probably like 18. And he, he approached, which takes boldness to ask someone to help you. I mean, that, that takes quite a lot of boldness. But he couldn't look at me in the eyes. He kept him looking down and looking around. And I kind of was looking at him. I just, I went to kind of tell him, like, almost like from an older brother kind of perspective, like, like look, look at me. You know, if you're mm. going to ask someone for something, you're going to connect to someone, you've got to look at them. Now, we ended up talking and spending some time together. We had, I think we had like two coffees or something like that. Tea, he had tea. Or, you know, he doesn't drink coffee. 
Um, yet. I did tell him. I said, you're saying that all the now. important lessons. You wait. Look somebody in the eye and make sure you have a coffee from time you, to time. You wait a few years, you'll need that coffee, mate. No, and, and he was just talking about, you know, the fact that he's very low-key. He says he doesn't really like social media. He has no DPs up. And, you know, but he's, he's been on it for a long, long time. He's been on social media. He grew up with, with social media. I mean, he's quite young. Um, and it just made me realize that a lot of the stuff you learn by just talking to people and having interactions and having awkward interactions, he just hasn't had any of that. Yeah. So the, the, the socialization you need to be able to understand how to talk to people, kind of social cues, he just had been so deprived of these things. And probably without anyone knowing, because, you know, if you look at him, he's just a normal kind of young guy. And that's when, for me, I think I first realized just how, I mean, of course, you hear folks who don't like the internet, don't like social media, talk about how the phone is destructive all the time. And I've always been like, I get it, but I, w I would always look at that with some, you know, skepticism. I'd be like, yeah, it's bad, but you can, it can be used for good. But that's the first time I think it hit me yeah. just how much control these things can actually have over our lives and how these things, whilst they have the potential for great, you know, connect, you know, connection to foster great connections, in people's pockets is the very thing holding them back from real and meaningful connections, it seems. Yeah. So it's like everyone has this limiter in their pocket, which I think they that's pull the out every thing. second and that, it yeah, it's, it's pulls like, them away. The fact that it's in people's pockets, I think is important because often people will say about social media, well, you know, before social media, there was the TV. Yeah. And before TV, people used to stare at the fire. <laughs> you know, people just, <laughs> yeah. um, and there's that great image online of like, oh, wasn't the world better before we had mobile phones and like 50 people on a bus just staring at a newspaper and not talking to each other. So yeah. like, you know, people need their solitude. Like, I get that. But I think that um, the fact that it is in people's phone, in people's pockets does make a bit of a difference. And the fact that the big kind of social media companies and content companies are designing these algorithms to get us to be addicted and to make us to feel good because that's their whole business model. Mm. That's a problem, right? So Netflix CEO or former CEO said that uh, their greatest competitor was sleep. That's not healthy. That's a really, it's really telling. And that's why they have the rolling stuff. And it's why it's, you like this. So you might also like that. And, um, but I think the really important thing that you'll say with that example with them, the young person who came to you and the kind of lack of social cues or human interactions is, I mean, that's bad enough in itself. But if you, if you zoom out of that and you think, what's this doing to humanity as a whole? It's, it's, we're forgetting how to, um, how to do conflict resolution mm. in relationship with one another. So unless you look at someone in the eye and unless you, and we've learned this more in the last couple of years of the pandemic, yeah. you can't, you can't relate to people in the same way. Right, like you actually need to be in space with people, in in order to be in trust with people. Yeah. Um, and connection moves at the speed of trust, so you have to build trust, and then a shared experience before you can have real human connection. So, you know, what does this mean for people? There's lots of evidence that young people are becoming more authoritarian. They believe in democracy less than they used to. Mm. You know, we've got all sorts of problems in the world. I mentioned climate change. There's a war going on not a million miles from here. Um, and if we can't be in a room together, look one another in the eye and find compromise based on that human connection that we're all the same, mm. right? We are a single species. Uh, then I really do feel fear for the world. So it is, um, I think it's more important than just a cultural phenomenon. I wouldn't put the use of social media in the same bracket as we used to have the TV and before that we absolutely. looked at the fire. I think it's more complicated than that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's multi-layered, right? There's all these different interlocking 
parts that make it so difficult. Hence why it's such a difficult problem to solve. Hence why I kind of doth my cap, if you like, to you, because it takes so much uh, to address these things. I mean, you speak, you spoke a bit earlier about your work in politics as well. You know, mm. are you allowed to, do you still speak about that period of your life? I can talk about that. Yeah, I don't okay. talk about it very often, <laughs> but I can. And why do you not talk about it very often? Uh, but I, th- I guess I was still in my late 20s at the time I worked in politics, which was only for a couple of years. Uh, and I thought it was the way to change the world. And I realized pretty quickly that it's a way that you can change the world, but actually you have to climb a very greasy pole to get to any position where you have any authority to be able to change the world. And in the meantime, you're just banging your head against bureaucratic processes and so you, um, you, you, people you, you, perpetuating their own power. You came in as a spad, if I'm correct. I worked for Ed Miliband for about 12 months. Yeah, firstly on his leadership campaign and then in the... Are you tough enough? Positions of, <laughs> hell yes, I'm tough <laughs> enough. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a good point, right? Like, in politics now and the way that the media works... People who actually are authentically really wonderful people. Ed Miliband is a lovely, clever, compassionate, empathetic person. But he was trained by this world and the people around him to forget all of that and to try and say something that really isn't you, really wasn't him, in order to like come across a certain way to the electorate. And the electorate, of course, common sense network, they yeah. see right through it. This is what I don't get and about the system. We can all see it. So we all know it's odd and it's, I mean, the oddest thing I saw yesterday, Alex, and honestly, obviously I have a deep issue because I am obsessed with news and I need to see someone about it. It is odd that I keep watching the news. I think there's something there, but I do work in the news, so whatever. So I get home at, you know, after work and I literally watch reruns of the debates or like I'll watch, you know, random debates. I was watching uh, uh, Liz Truss, who when Mm. this comes out, maybe she's prime minister, maybe she isn't. And it was the weirdest interaction I'd ever seen because, I mean, again, I've been watching politics for a long, long time, so whatever. Here's what I saw with Liz Truss. She had a policy that she wanted to put out, that she wanted to run with about changing public sector pay, whatever. People came out and said that this is, you know, we don't like this. She then pulled the policy back. In this debate, Kay Burley, who's in the interview, says, oh, you, you backtracked on that policy. Would you like to apologize for, for, um, for, um, for basically, you know, backtracking, as it were, which is kind of odd. So she then said, I didn't backtrack. Um, people misinterpreted the policy. And as soon as they told me, uh, as soon as people told me their mis- misinter- misinterpretation, I uh, s- uh, canceled the policy. And Kay Burley says, look, how did we misinterpret it? And she was like, oh, the policy's not going ahead anymore. Like, we can move on. And then they just kept on going back and forth for like three minutes with Kay Burley asking her to apologize, her saying the policy isn't happening anymore, so we should move on, and that the media misinterpreted it. And it's just kept going around. And I'm just thinking, we all know what happened. <laughs> but they kept on doing this weird dance of like kind of word politics and sounded like, do you apologize? She was like, oh, no, the media got it wrong. And she was like, no. And, and I just watched the crowd and it's like, is there anyone in there who's genuinely like, oh, I wonder. we all know. She said a policy. She realized the backlash was a bit too much. And like a normal human being, she probably thought, oh gosh, okay, let, let's get rid of it. And they just got rid of it. But it's like, for some reason, yeah, do, they, do they think they're fooling anyone when all that stuff happens? Uh, 
No, I don't think anyone <laughs> thinks they're fooling anyone. But I think that, that, I mean, there's two points on this. One is that it comes back to the previous thing we just talked about is that we're not very good at conflict resolution anymore. <laughs> and in the example that you use, people are getting like, people are obsessing about the finer details of words or you said this and you said that and you know and that's not healthy in any mm. argument actually you have to look at the substance of the argument rather than the semantics of the yeah. argument and that's true in human relationships in general um so that's a problem but if somebody feels like they've done something wrong or made a misstep or a mistake we all do it we all do it every single day you know say look i'm really sorry actually i hadn't done the preparation on that and i made a mistake and we're changing that policy because we don't think it was very good and i own up to that and i'm responsible for that and i can talk about it if you want i think actually there are other things that people want to hear so we can talk about those too but you know people have much much more respect for that much more respect i would for that. love to see what you just said like other debate somewhere because I've been watching politics, politics for, long, for as long as I have. The, 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 you know, the way U-turns are branded, I think, is so stupid. Yeah. If you yeah. thought something was going to work and presented with fresh information or upon a second kind of deeper look, you realize that actually this isn't the best thing. Let's do this instead. I'm more yeah. confident in this. People go, you changed your mind. You it's changed good. your mind. You're terrible. Yeah, you're wrong. We won't vote for you. S What's that? So, so I have the amazing privilege and fortune of um, being an Obama fellow and spending some time in America with Barack and Michelle Obama and other like amazing change makers that's from around the world. That's one of your pictures. It's, yeah, and it, uh, yeah, it's just like the most incredible experience of my life. And um, uh, one of the questions, so I was selected from 21,000 people uh, to be 20 in this round of Obama fellows. And one of the questions was, tell us the last time you changed your mind. That world and people who lead with empathy, right, like Barack and Michelle Obama and people who are more cognizant of the value of human relationships and bottom-up change and how broken different systems and cultures are, as they are, um, you know, they're very cognizant of that. They ask you questions like, when was the last time you changed your mind? Because they see value in it. Mm. Uh, I think my answer, by the way, was like on republicanism in this country. So I used to feel very strongly, and it would make sense given some of the things that I've shared with you, that <laughs> we shouldn't have a monarch in this country because it's not democratic and it perpetuates the class system. And I've kind of changed my mind on that. I haven't changed my mind on the theory or the philosophy, but I've, I've seen the value that the Queen has had in giving people comfort over a long period of time and, and her consistency, and like continuity, yeah. and her not being a politician. You know, one of the other things my dad says is that if there was a president in this country in the last 20 years, it would have either been Tony Blair or Nigel Farage. <laughs> so I, I'm like, oh, all right. Thought of yeah, I'm not a Republican anymore. Let's just keep the Queen for a bit. <laughs> so, um, but so I think that was my answer to the question: yeah, when, yeah. You know, when was the last time you changed your mind? But it's, I think it's a like it's a it's an asset being able to change your mind, and because the opposite is being dogmatic and stubborn, stubborn, right? Like that's not. And the thing is, we would none of us. This is what I find so fascinating about maybe the the the, the distance. I mean, it's it's just a screen, but I think it's thousands of miles. It feels the diff the distance that these screens create between us and reality, because I would never be friends with someone who never changes their mind, <laughs> never apologizes, and like, like is never wrong about yeah. anything ever. Like that, that would just be such an awkward relationship to have. I couldn't trust such a person. And so why that's the main thing we look for in our political leaders who we want to trust, I've always found really peculiar. I agree, yeah, but there's, there is, um, 
there is another extreme here, right, where you're apologising for things constantly, yeah. as has happened with our current <laughs> prime minister, or by the time this goes out, maybe our former prime minister, where like every week he's apologising for something else incompetent or inept that he's done, and he was right <laughs> to apologise for all those things because he did a lot of incompetent and inept things, but like that's not good either. You don't yeah, want to be apologising yeah, for yeah. stuff every day. That kind of shows that you're on the wrong track. But yeah, from time to time when people make mistakes, fess up. Yeah, and having some of the things we're talking about, almost like we're talking about throwbacks, all right? You know, changing your mind, speaking to people, uh, you know, who live next to you, learning the names of your neighbours. You know, all these yeah. things are things that, you're right, as we've rapidly accelerated and as digital proliferation has exacerbated, we've left some things on, you know, something that have fallen out of the car, if you like, and it mm. seems like care and compassion are some of these things that, that, that have fallen out of the car. Um, and I guess really what this what this conversation's kind of bringing to the top for me is really thinking how people pick that back up and really uh, understand that you know you can climb as you said the corporate ladder but every time you have a big piece of success you want to share it with somebody right every time you watch a funny video you want to share it you want to show somebody you want to connect with them so how do we raise the value if you like of connection again in this world that I must be honest, it's so easy to go through a week where you only talk to people at, at work about work. Yeah. And, you know, you, you kind of, you, and that's it. Like, it's very, it, I don't think it's difficult to kind of go to work, you know, AirPods in on your way to work, finish mm-hmm. work, AirPods back in, get, you know, home. Maybe you, you watch like two shows, it's 10. So you're like, bedtime. That and is, then you keep scrolling when you're in bed and that doesn't help either. Yeah. <laughs> that is some people's reality for a whole week. Yeah. You know, hence why I speak about those people who do feel like they're in a dark, a black hole and just feel like it's too much to kind of dig myself out. How do we raise the value of, of connection and, 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 and uh, relationships again? Well, so the first thing I would say is um, you talked about success and the importance of sharing success. I don't know if this is how you intended that to mean, what you intended that to mean, but... Um, you, I think people also need to recognize that their individual success is shared. Mm. Not just that they're sharing their individual success with others, but that their teacher helped them on that road, right? A parent helped them on that road, a grandparent, really a colleague, good. other people around you. That success was never individual. It was always based on the relationships and the value that people got from those relationships. Second thing I'd say, that if, we are, if we're on this hurtling train through professional life in this context where media and social media and kind of rampant capitalism and rampant political forces some of which we've discussed are dominating our existence we need to remember the things that made us human in the first place Mm. um and one of the things i think about our work at the cares family is that you know we have younger people uh, say they're 25 and they're a management consultant right and they commute to work with their AirPods in and they don't speak to people on the way to work and they buy a coffee from a machine and they buy their shopping from a machine and then they sit in front of a computer screen all day and if they do have conversations with other people, they're probably other 25-year-old graduates who are also management consultants who have a very similar life experience to them. Um, And then they'll go to a wedding on a Saturday and the first question that will be asked of them, it might be, what school did you go to? That would be (laughs) terrible. Or it might be, what do you do? And somewhere along the line, we've forgotten to ask the question, how do you do? 
the the value that we are expecting of people is in their jobs their profession their professional identity how do you do is like who are you in the world how are you feeling about today how are you feeling about your role in the world how how do you do is a better question than what do you do but when that 25 year old comes along to an activity with 106 year old olive who lives down the road from me in north london and olive doesn't know what that wedding looks like and doesn't know what management consultancy is literally doesn't know what it is um and probably the first question is not going to be what do you do it's going to be how are you yeah right then the 25 year old management consultant needs to re-raise their human empathy needs to like be kind or it needs to needs to raise the 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 qualities and characteristics that make them human in the first place so kindness empathy humor sometimes flirtation and yes that can happen between a 106 year old and a 25 year old it's weirdly wonderful to see um you know but just like being in a room with people and sometimes those like younger people come into interactions with the older people stressed they're like i don't have time for this i've got 100 emails landing in my inbox i've just had another 10 notifications on whatsapp i don't have time to hang out with 40 90 year olds when they leave Hmm. They are euphoric, top of the world, because they've forgotten about their phone. We don't have phones. Apart from in new tech workshops where younger and older people share tech skills, we don't really have phones or screens or anything in the in the spaces that we, intergenerational spaces that we create. So, you know, I guess the answer to your question is, uh, how do we how do we build connection again? We stop, we pause, we spend, spend time with other people who are not like us. We look at the intersections across generations in particular. The reason that we do intergenerational work is not just because of younger and older people. It's because the middle class has swelled so much in the last 40 years. So you have rooted older people in big cities like London uh, who are often quite socially conservative, you know, working class, not well-educated, not well-traveled yeah. in their 80s and 90s who grew up during a war Right, and who can remember the Blitz as a defining moment in their lives. Uh, and they live side by side with very liberal, urban, metropolitan, well-educated, well-traveled, young people who are incredibly well digitally connected in the world. You bring those two groups together. And um, I used to say that a magic happens, mm. but it's not magic. Um, it's just humanity. Humanity is magic. But yeah. you know, it's just you forget all of those other things that are going on in your world. You forget about all those efficiencies that you're trying to create mm. and you remember what's important. Brilliant. I, 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 I mean, we need you to succeed. It's such an important <laughs> work you're doing and honestly, thank you for doing it and thank you for being part of this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Hey, thank you for taking time to watch that video. Here at the Common Sense Network, we thrive on exposing you to different ideas. If you're someone who likes ideas, you'd like learning new things, hit the subscribe button now and turn on notifications so you're first to hear when we have a new video out.